on this episode of The Jason Wright Show. Most dangerous, craziest situations ever. He has an emotional attachment to the purpose that he's serving or the team that he's working with. They talk about it all the time, an unpaid debt, because if I go out there with you, Jason, and I know you're my brother in arms and you are my keeper and I am your keeper, we're brothers keepers, and, and I know that I have an obligation to you, that emotional attachment to that five or six man team is what drives the highest performance that I have to give. Guys, I got to tell you something. I have a new favorite product. It is Pluck Seasonings. This stuff is amazing. And not only that, get this. You ready? Lean in for it. It is made with organ meats. Okay, hear me out. If you're like me and you understand and respect the unbelievable rich nutritional value of organ meats, but you don't want to get all liver king and start biting into bull testicles and raw liver and spleens and all that. Well, guess what? There is an answer and it is delicious. It is pluck seasonings. Try the all purpose, the zesty garlic, the pure, which is just a basically no taste ground freeze-dried organ meats that you can put in protein shakes recipes whatever to get the nutrients but don't worry about the taste and then there's the spice that is so good all right so thursday night for mrs wright i made her ribeye tacos and my ribeye tacos there is nothing about them that sucks they are absolutely amazing but but my friends this thursday was extra special because you know what i did i made a little avocado salad and i threw some of the zesty garlic pluck in there mixed it up put that on the ribeye tacos game changer so good so savory so delicious and get this mrs wright commented on how delicious they were had no clue that she had had a dose of spleen heart liver kidney all of it and didn't even know it so oh and some pancreas was in there too how about that i left one of the five organ meats out it is so good. Check it out at eatpluck.com. And guess what? For the Jason Wright Show listeners, you, you can save 15% by using promo code IMPROVE because that's what we do around here, baby. We are improving always and always. And I want you to improve your nutrition. I want you to improve the taste of your food. And you're going to do it with Pluck. That is eatpluck.com. Promo code IMPROVE for 15% off. I guarantee you will love this stuff. Go get some and enjoy. Get plucking, baby. Greg Cagle, welcome to the Jason Wright Show. I am so glad to have you on here, brother. How are you? I'm good, man. I am very good. All right. Well, good deal. Well, all right. So we were talking a little bit before I hit record. What we want to cover today is I want to hit some culture and organizations. That's your expertise. That's your wheelhouse. There's one particular topic of your four dimensions that I want to talk about today because I'm dealing with it so selfishly. You know, and, and I got to tell you something, Greg. 
you know, this whole podcast is a is an act of pure selfishness. What I did was I started a podcast as a platform for me to get to reach out to smart people like you and ask you questions. It'd be kind of weird if I just called you out of the blue and said, hey, Greg, uh, Jason Wright here in Texas, I'd really like to visit with you, but see if I have a podcast, then, then it makes it a little more acceptable, right? So, so I want to cover some of the things about your book. And then also, I love on this show to hear people's story. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what What made Greg Kegel, who is now one of the most sought after executive coaches in the business, what led you to that? What, uh, you know, the battle scars and all, I love hearing that hero's journey that every single one of us has. And I feel like part of my job is to tease that out of the guest so that all the audience can realize they're going through their own hero's journey. Sometimes what they may think is just life punching them in the gut is really just a journey that if, if, if applied properly will turn into wisdom and teaching that they can leverage down the road. So that's where we're, that's where we're going. But first of all, tell me what you're up to these days. What, who is Greg Cagle and what is your day to day? What are you doing on a daily basis these days? You know, I'm, that's a great question because I'm kind of in a transition right now. So, um, up until I guess COVID, um, you know, my my, uh, my primary focus was getting out and working with organizations on site, either as a consultant, uh, as an executive coach, or you know, some sort of strategist in helping them uh, develop, you know, a, 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 long, a midterm to long term strategy, uh, and and kind of helping them develop leadership capability and capacity. After, fast forward past COVID. And, you know, I I think I'm really just transitioning right now into wanting to really just work specifically with some very specific type of individuals and companies that really understand leadership, the leadership culture connection, and have a real desire to build this environment in whatever business they're in, build this environment that people just are on fire about, that they create these, these frontline brand warriors uh, that feel like they're working in a place where they're serving a purpose, they're actually contributing and they're valued uh, and that sort of thing. So it's kind of working with those types of companies and those types of leaders. And so I'm narrowing, narrowing it down to, to, to that. And that's kind of what's going on with me. And, and, and I, I actually, as I wrote this book, which is my second uh, book, I, I've decided I, I kind of like writing. And so I think maybe another book or two um, I, I want to get out there as well. So um, thinking about that as well. So you bring up something that I think is um, I can certainly relate to. So in the era of guys like Simon Sinek, who is, you know, kind of, and I know that you probably talked to organizations about Simon's work and you've applied some of his work. I mean, you're talking about an ad executive who essentially his whole golden circle idea, which to all of us, it's, 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 it's funny. A lot of times the most groundbreaking ideas are the most simple. And essentially, you know, just for the listener that's not familiar with Simon Sinek's work and the golden circle, it is basically getting to your why, you know, a company is going to know what they do, how they do it. But to answer that question of why they do it, that is something that I don't know about you, but I find so many executives, everybody from the owner, the, the principal of the corp, the company, to the the line worker, to be able to say why you do what you do as an individual on your team as an organization. That's a challenging question for folks, isn't it? 
Well, it is, and I, I'm, I'm about to I'm about to engage you in a conversation that will prove to your listeners we did not practice this or prepare for this. This is oh. off the cuff, okay? So you mentioned Simon Sinek's work, and and you're right. You know, it was the whole idea. He wrote the book. He did the TED Talk on start yep. with yep. why. Yep. Now, okay, so let me throw this back at you and see what you think about this. I studied that quite a bit talk to a lot of the leaders and companies that I work with. And we kicked that around and I came to a different conclusion. And here's, here's, here's the conclusion I came to. Why is extremely important. There's no question about that. And everyone in the organization has to understand why we do what we do at some point Mm -hmm. where I began to drift away from cynics premise is the start with part. Mm. Let me explain this. I think, and you made a great point here, James. You said it's so hard for leaders to get to that. And even when they get to that, to get it out into the organization so it lives and breathes, you know, is is as deeply and as broadly as they want it to, right? And I believe that the reason that is, the reason that is difficult, because I do agree with you, is because if you start with why, it's difficult. If you start with who, the why will hit you in the face. Here's what I mean by that. If you and I start a company tomorrow and we understand who we are, what we're all about, who, you know, what is it that makes us passionate every day about what we're going to do, then we then attach that who to why. In fact, I was I, this was consuming me so much when when Cynic was kind of at the top of his game when when start with why was all the rage. And you know, he talks about Apple and mm-hmm. he uses Ample as an example that they started with why. And I knew better. And I said, that, that's just not right. And I, I was doing some research for actually for this book. And in my research, I ran across an old clip from, um, um, from um, Steve Jobs. And it was Steve talking to his company right after he had come back to the company after he had been fired. Remember that he'd been fired. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He spent a stint uh, doing some other things, and then he comes back to Apple. And at that time, they literally were like ninety to one hundred and twenty days from solvency, right? Mm-hmm. And he's talking to the company, and here's what he said: the first thing he said to him is, "I just want you to know, we just eliminated a third of all of our product line." And then he goes on to tell them why he did that. He said, "What we realized is we had gotten away from who." We are. Mm. He said, we're going to rediscover who we are, and then we'll understand better about why we do what we do. And I said, there it is. And 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 I I, I mean that that's my thought on it. Um, I, I again, just to be clear, I do agree why is extremely important, but it's I, I just don't think it's a starting point. And that's kind of part of what what I say in in the culture book as well. Yeah, is really defining who we are and what we're about. I love that. And it kind of plays into one of my favorite quotes I've just recently heard. And another expert, uh, the author of Begin With We that I just had on my show, a guy named Kyle McDowell. I'd love to have you two guys talk shop. That would be amazing. And we were both, uh, we both came across this quote from Nick Saban, where he's talking about how mediocre people cannot stand high achieving people and high achieving people cannot stand mediocre people. And you have to have, if you, if you're going to be an organization of excellence, like what he's tried to build at the university of Alabama, then you have to have everyone that is excellent and appreciates excellence. And because you just, you can't blend the two. So 
whenever you go into an organization and you have that owner, C-level guy or gal that's running the show that you've got to convince that, what are some of the responses you get? Because I think we're, and, and let me tell you why I'm asking this question. I mostly deal with small business or to small to mid-sized business entrepreneurs that are second, third generation sometimes. You know, they 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 grew up playing at the at the corporate office. And mm-hmm. so they haven't had to go out and really dig into this stuff because their grandfather, their father, their grandmother Someone started this organization a long time ago, and it, and it's just been going really well. And all they have to do is try not to break it. So when you come in and you start to t- ask them a question like, "Who are you? Who who are we as an organization?" They can give you a deer in the headlights look. So I would like to know, in your experience, when you've had to when that, when someone has challenged you and said, "Greg, what the hell do you mean? Who are we?" I mean that sounds a little woo and a little touchy-feely for me, how do you address that to that, I guess you would say, skeptical business owner, entrepreneur, or CEO? Well, look, it boils down to, ultimately, it boils down to uh, a purpose, and that purpose is almost always tied to uh, leadership, whether it's the leaders, the actual owner, or, or leader. And, and, you know, there's a, there's a huge leader culture connection. As goes the leader, so goes the culture. And, and I try to get leaders to understand how you think, how you behave or act, and the way that you interact with people is, sets the tone for what everyone else is going to do. And, and that's really how I define culture. It's the way the people in the organization think, the way they act, and the way they interact. And so when you're, when you're trying to determine who we are, it's all about the thinking. How do we think around here? One of the best things I've ever heard is I, 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 was, um, I was touring a steel plant because I, I just started working with a, a very large steel manufacturer, public company. And one of the things that they say is, we want you to tour our plant, kind of understand our people, what we do, uh, if you're going to be working with, you know, with, with, with our group, because it was a long-term engagement. And I'll never forget, um, I'm, I'm going through this, this plant and I come across this kind of assembly line thing here and, and I stop and I'm talking to this frontline employee. I think they called him a lead man uh, on a crew. And I start talking to him and he says, he says to me, he goes, because I, I, he's making this product, I don't really understand what it is. So tell me what you're doing. He said, you know that, that stadium down there in, in such and such town? I go, yeah, it's a, it's a, and it's an NFL stadium. I said, yeah. He said, that's got my steel in it. And I stopped for a second and I thought, wow, here's a guy on the front line. He didn't say that's our steel. He said, that's got my steel in it. And so I'm walking away from that encounter and I turn to the guy that's giving me the tour and I say, man, you know, you got to be excited about that. And here's what he said. He said, that's who we are. That's exactly who we are. We take ownership over everything we do. And everything we do is owned by everybody. And and he said, we want every employee to see their reflection in our success. What what a cool idea. Now, this this is a company that's got 12,000 plus employees. And they've got that kind of frontline obsession. And that's that's what happens when you really tap into who we are. Who are we? Yeah, yeah. I love that. And... I think that now, would you agree that 
more than ever, employees coming out, you know, I told you that Rylan, my oldest, just graduated from the University of Alabama. And again, she would not like to see that University of Tennessee little pickup truck you got in your background there, because I know you're in Knoxville. So we just will we'll tell her to skip this episode of the Jason Wright show that her dad made. Uh, but my, my daughter that's about to graduate from the University of Colorado next year, this generation seems to be more in line with finding purpose within whatever their vocation is. They seem more interested in, we talked about, they're, they're not as interested in building wealth and owning things. And I'm, I know I'm speaking in some general terms here, but what also, I think that what they, they are coming and expecting it. But what I have noticed is that when you can take an organization that's 50 years old, and if you can alert them to the things that you just mentioned, if you can tie their conscious mind to the end, that end user of their product, of their service, then it does bring in a, a, a different element that, it, that can drive them when things are kind of just kind of rough. How do you do that, though, Greg? If you, how do you do that if you don't? Like, what did that organization have that you've seen where another organization where you have a case study, you go in, and you've got that CEO, which I got to, I mean, I'm kind of talking out both sides of my mouth here. I might be arguing with myself because I'm thinking if they're hiring you, to me, someone hiring you says they already get it at least to some extent, or you wouldn't be in the building. But here is something, and maybe you can touch on this. Here is one of the biggest challenges I've had whenever I go in to do advisory work, especially whenever they want me to work on culture, work on team building, work on getting them excited about the four disciplines of execution or something like that is yep. it's almost, they want to outsource their leadership. Talk about how challenge, I guess just land a little bit more on how important it is for the leader, not, not you or I coming in as the consultant, the outside hire, the one that all the employees are going to at first go, Oh God, I got to go do a one-on-one with Greg today, you know, but then they, but because you're so good at your job, eventually they're like, Oh my gosh, today I get to go talk to Greg. It's going to make me feel better. But at first, you know, you show up and like, Oh, good Lord, another initiative. But for that owner that just doesn't quite get it, how do you get through to them and, um, and, and convey that message so that it starts with them and then can get to the rest of the organization? All right. I think I know what you just asked. Um, there was, there was a lot in there. Uh, I have a problem with that, Greg. I'll ask, I'll make state. I'm like a politician. I'll make 30 minutes of a statement and then a question will be 30 seconds tucked in at the very end. (laughs) Sorry. I I, I don't think it's a problem at all. In fact, you touched on two or three things that we probably ought to go back and kind of unpack. Uh, and and maybe I can unpack that in, in kind of one statement here. So when I get called in and see if this fits for you because you kind of do some of the same things I do. Sure. When I get called in, one of two things is happening. Um, either uh, the, 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 it was a company that had enjoyed some success and things have gone south. And the, the leaders or the leadership of the organization has tried to figure it out and they've tried to turn it around. They've tried to stop the bleeding or whatever the case is. Uh, and they haven't been able to. So I, I get called in and they, they kind of look at me as a doctor that's going to come in and diagnose what's going on. And then there's the other uh, organization that is wildly successful and is ready to scale, but is nervous or doesn't know how or doesn't know what to do and is concerned that, hey, if we get too big, we'll lose what makes us great. Um, they, they're, you know, and so one of the two. Right. And it's interesting because 
What you said is so true. What I, the first thing I say to leaders is when it comes to successful organizations and thriving, exciting, energetic cultures, the, 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 if, there's, if, there's a, if there's a problem with culture, uh, the, 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 the answer falls on leadership. And if they're in the solution to culture is always leadership. Mm-hmm. And so when I go into an organization, see, see if this fits for you, um, where they say, look, you know, we've, we've been on decline for a while. We can't quite understand what's going on and we can't start figuring out. And I'll walk in James and here's what they'll start doing. They'll start feeding me all kinds of data, all kinds of reports, all kinds of, you know, and, and this is one of the big mistakes that a lot of leaders make. They lead from a place of organizational intelligence. They, they gather information in organizational intelligence, and that's what they lead with. Um, and because and the reason is, is because it's it's clear. You can clearly define if you're meeting your goals, if you're not meeting your goals, if, you, if you're, you know, if your margins are where they need to be, if your revenue is where they need to be, that's all measurable, right? But, but the, the real, the real leadership has to occur in creating the environment necessary to, to, to be successful. And the organizations that have had a high level of success, here's what they didn't realize. The higher your level of success, the more success you achieve as an organization, the higher risk you are for complacency. Mm-hmm. Most leaders don't see complacency coming for two reasons. And the, and the biggest one is this because they don't recognize complacency when it starts. Most leaders will tell you complacency is walking into an organization with employees who are just apathetic. That's not, that's not real complacency. Complacency really is you walk into an organization, people are really busy and they're doing all kinds of things. It's just not productive and it's not creating success. And the reason is because they're committed to the status quo. They're committed to what got us there. Mm-hmm. It worked. We, we now climbed the mountain of success. So now we want to replicate all of that, systematize all of that, and then scale that, which is true to some extent. But if that's the only focus you have, eventually you will slip in the marketplace because things never stay the same. Yeah. And so we're committed to doing the same thing that got us there because we're number one, we're successful. And over a course of time, as we continue to work harder and commit to those things, the effect of them are less and less and less. And we can't figure out why we're not getting traction. Yeah. You know, it's funny because Colin and I met. Okay. So just so the listener knows that Colin Barbado, dear friend of mine, he's actually been on the podcast before. He's a mutual friend of mine and Greg's. And Whenever we came to the Home Depot Corporation, that's what they had just gone through. You know, culture is what built the Home Depot. Arthur Blank and Bernie Marcus, my gosh, they built a cult. It was a cult-like following. The problem is that had they all of a sudden had these two back-to-back quarters of, basically, they went into a corporate recession where they actually declined as, a, as opposed to growing sales for the first time in their back-to-back quarters in their entire company history. And so they bring in Bob Nardelli to completely change things. But And here's what happened between Bernie Marcus, Arthur Blank, and then Bob Nardelli, and then later Frank Blake, is Bob Nardelli tried to implement a GE-type 
culture, a manufacturing culture in a retail behemoth environment, and it didn't. It was an absolute utter disaster. Now, I always defend, because I was there front and center whenever Dennis Donovan and Bob Nardelli were trying to change things at Home Depot, as was Colin. I always defend him and say, look, he was trying to make them do a lot of growing up techno- technologically, dis- and you put some, some controls and disciplines in there that had to happen. Uh, just so there, there was some good to what Nardelli did. It wasn't until Frank Blake came along and really put back in a new kind of culture, but also by leveraging the, the past of it, but with the discipline of modern practices, technological regulation, you know, all the other things that make a company, you know, tighten up. How important is it to, I guess, going back to this complacency, and that's, this is one of your four dimensions is the complacency, the one that interests me the most, because I, I, that's the one that really frustrates me the most is whenever you go into an organization and you go, man, I would love to acquire this company because it's just so good and the people are so good and you, the owner, you don't really realize what you have. And more importantly, you don't realize you could lose it all. It's, it may be a slow death, but if you're not careful, you can lose this beautiful thing you have. So how important is it to understand what you mentioned earlier, the things that got the organization to where it is, and you're trying to make this shift from, from complacency to purpose, to who we are, to identifying who we are so you can leverage it. How important is it, and what are some of the steps you take to leverage that history to bring it into the present day and move forward with success? All right, so I'm, I'm going to give you a long answer here, but boy, I hope this comes together for you, okay? Because I, maybe this is a good time, James, for me to kind of throw out those four dimensions. Yeah. But before I do that, I want to tell your listeners something, and I, I, I haven't talked to you about this, so I'd love to you know see what your reaction is. Here's what I've learned over the years in business, and this is what I really work with leaders uh, to help them understand at a 30,000-foot level. There's, there's basically three business functions that every business, I don't care who it is, has to have a culture that's, that's able to deliver on these three business functions. If you understand those three business functions and you understand what's required to be successful at each one of those functions, you can then lead the different dimensions of your culture in a way that they work both independently and interdependently with each other to deliver high performance. If you don't mind, can I share the three functions? Absolutely. All right. So here it is. This is what what I teach leaders. If you're going to have sustained growth and and, and be a sustainable company over a long period of time, uh, these three business functions have to be delivered on. Here they are. The first one, this is what most leaders understand. This is where they focus. They get this. But the the first one is execution of strategy. Okay, you you must have a strategy. That's your roadmap for where you're going, and the ability to execute on that strategy with as much efficiency and precision as possible is is going to help you be a a, a industry leader. Okay, now most leaders get that. Now here's the thing: what what is required to be embedded in my culture? to naturally and organically be, be effective at delivering on strategy. It's accuracy and focus, okay? So your culture has to have the ability to be accurate in its execution items on, on delivering on your strategy proposition. Okay, so most leaders get that. But then there are two other things 
that leaders don't think about and they make a big mistake. They think that they can plan for it. And here they are. The other two business functions are the ability to navigate crisis and the ability to capture opportunity. And this goes back to my lifetime as an entrepreneur, as well as working with other organizations over the years, I've seen this play out. And in, in, when an organization, what I tell leaders is you cannot plan for crisis. And they shake their head and go, well, then I'm in trouble. No, you're not. You can't plan for it, but you can be prepared mm. for it. And here's what I mean by this. The, the, the type of crisis I'm talking about is the one that will literally derail your organization. Okay. And, and that kind of crisis comes in the middle of the night from somewhere you never thought saw it coming. I, if there's anyone that's listening to this podcast right now that could tell me, Hey, I predicted the pandemic. <laughs> um, I really want to talk to you. <laughs> right. But, and yet there were organizations that survived and there were organizations that didn't, but no one could have planned for it. So what is required to navigate crisis? You've got to have adaptability built into your, you've got to be able to move on a dime. You've got to shift your business focus on survival from growth to survival. You've got to be able to move on a dime. You've got to be able to think innovatively and creatively on how you're going to navigate this crisis. And you can't plan for that. But you're, if your culture is where it needs to be, you're prepared for it. The last one is opportunity. And here's what we, you and I know. We've been on the planet a while. Most game-changing opportunity is like the crisis that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. it, it comes from nowhere. It, your biggest opportunity to catapult your business usually came out of nowhere. And, you, and you, you're like, thank God. God delivered something right to my doorstep. Yep. That's just the way it happens. What is, what is required there? Agility. The ability to move quickly and to jump on that opportunity, take advantage of it and move forward. And so that's the conversation that I begin with with leaders. And then when I start talking about the different dimensions and the role that they play in delivering on those three business functions, it all falls together for them. I love that. And you, you, you mentioned, for example, you know, processes, procedures, order, and structure. And that's, that's really the three dimensions, okay? We, we, we label them, but it's basically there's, there's complacency, which is basically a commitment to status quo. That's the negative dimension that we want to eradicate, okay? And we can talk about how organizations unintentionally drive themselves into complacency and don't even realize it. The other three dimensions, which are positive, is order and structure, Right. Uh, that's the dimension. We call that the compliant dimension, because this is where processes, rules and procedures live. It gives the organization order and structure uh, and people need to comply with those processes, procedures and rules. Then there's the committed dimension. That's where performance and achievement lies. That's where all of our goals are. This is where we look to take our, our people beyond their best past performance. So it's performance and achievement driven. And then the last one is the courageous dimension. And that's where all the innovation and creativity resides. And so, uh, and, and the reason we call that the courageous dimension is because it takes courage to step away from what you know and enter into the waters of the unknown sure. to think innovatively. It's so, it's so tempting, isn't it? Yeah. To, 
and one of the things that I talk about in the book is how most organizations, they set up these different filters and, you know, any innovative idea has to pass through all these layers of leadership before it actually gets done. And, they, and, and you think, oh, well, that's good, isn't it? Well, here's the, here's the problem with that. Innovation always looks stupid uh, at the time. Yep. Because it flies in the face of traditional knowledge. Yep. I tell a great story of Western Union in the book and how the the, the, the the CEO of that company was given practically the patents to the telephone. Mm-hmm. And his response was, what would this company ever do with an electronic toy? Mm-hmm. And he poo-pooed it because it didn't make sense in the experience and knowledge that he had at the time. Right. Therefore, it must be a bad idea. Well, we know better now, right? Yep. That was a long answer. I'm sorry, James. No, that that's that's absolutely that's perfect. And the thing that is uh, what I was reminded of, I so I'm reading again the book Bold by Stephen Kotler and Peter Diamantis, and they open with the story of Kodak, which is one of the greatest stories ever told of an incredible company that was not looking to innovate that just decided why in the world would anyone ever, well, and then uh, I think, you know, like with Xerox, and I, I think was it Xerox that had the mouse first or or or, or you know, somebody, this guy creates the mouse and they go to Xerox, Xerox, like, what would we ever do with that? And then, but, but it, you know, and well, and it, Xerox was actually a good story at one time because the the inventors, the, the guy that came up with the idea, he would tell his boss every day for I don't know how long, hey, we're using these $100,000 image printers whatever, we can, we can make this more efficient. That was the 3D printer. That, that's how it came about. But the bottom line mm-hmm. is, you're exactly right. And now Kodak, we don't even know, we don't even hear of Kodak and all the technology that we have is in our phones. If they had just seen what was coming, we might have been talking on Kodak phones instead of iPhones. It's just this, but it didn't make sense at the time. Yeah, James, this, this is, uh, listen, you're making a great point here. And I don't, I don't want your listeners to miss this. It's interesting because the knowledge and experience that we gain over time, which is our biggest asset, turns out to be our biggest liability because if it can't fit within that knowledge and experience, we discount it. Look, you know, I, I opened my book with the story of Netflix and, and, and Blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And oh, what's yeah. interesting is Blockbuster had the opportunity to put Netflix out of business not once but twice. Yep, yep. And both in, in both times – what they did was they went back to what they had done before. They just couldn't help themselves. Yep. And, and that's why I say that organizations that have had a high level of success are the ones that are at the most risk of complacency. Absolutely. And what you're doing worked. Absolutely. And so, right? Um, and, and so this is a really good point you're making. All right, we're back. We're back. Okay, so for the listener out there, look. Greg and I are meeting for the first time with the exception of one conversation. This happens all the time. We're having a great conversation. But if you notice, he's called me James a couple of times. I paused. I was like, I don't want you to be upset with me at the end of this conversation. And I'm also not going to change this to the James Wright show. So we got to do something here. So (laughs) there you go, Greg. Yeah. So imagine how embarrassed I am uh, to be calling you the wrong name. Okay. I got it. So it's, Jason, glad to meet you, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> it's no sweat. But hey, okay, but I do want to pick up on the conversation because one of the best pieces of advice that was ever given to me, there's a guy here out in, uh, in Texas, Robert Pelche. He's a, he's a car dealer, one of the most successful 
especially in East Texas, but basically in the country, he's got to be one of the top volume dealers in the entire country. And he and I, when I first bought my first real estate company, we would have lunch almost on a weekly basis. And one of the things he told me, because at that time, Greg, I was so scared that I was going to go broke every single day. I was 28. I just bought a real estate company. I didn't know a thing about real estate. I'd never lived in this town. I mean, it was, it was, everything was so new. And Robert was the one that told me what you taught, what you just, the first thing you mentioned there was like, you can't plan for a pandemic, but you can be prepared for some big event, that black swan event. Right. And he said, here's what you do. He said, and I've done this in my, for my dealerships. He said, you write down, okay, if all of a sudden an economic downturn happens and we, our sales decrease by 15%, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to cut advertising here, here, here. I'm going to pull back here. Plan B, if it comes down to this, here's what I do for C. Then here's what I do if, you know, A, B, C, D scenario, if any of those happen, here's how I'm going to react. And it didn't have to be specific. It didn't have to be a pandemic. It was just basically, if my business suffers by A, B, C, or D, this is how we are going to react. He said, you do that for your business. You put it in your drawer. You forget about it. And then you just conduct business. He said, you have to have mentally, you have to understand you, your organization has to have some sort of reaction and a contingency plan in case something happens. And that was one of the most helpful and beneficial pieces of advice I ever received as an entrepreneur. And that's what you're saying. It's like, no, you can't plan for COVID-19, but you better have uh, the ability to turn on a dime, or if all of a sudden everyone starts taking pictures on their phone instead of using your film, you better figure out a way to leverage that either by making some hardware, some equipment. You've got to be able to adapt or you're going to die on the vine. I think that, and, and it's cool because the first three things that you talk about here, I think all of them could almost put in, I mean, there's almost another book here, like basically putting an organization in a flow state because you're also lightening a lot of cognitive load is what I see in these first three. These, these, well, you know, whenever you get, especially when you get down to compliant and committed and then the courageous, this puts you in, going back to Dm Anderson Collar's book, Bold, this puts you in a state of flow almost as an organization to where now we know what we're going to do. The, the day-to-day running, we, we've got that nailed now watch us take some bold leaps because we're not having to stop and think about those little bitty operational pieces. We have those standards set. Am I, am I thinking about that the right way? You're thinking about it. In fact, that's fantastic advice that gentleman gave you. And I would, I would layer on top of that and say all of that and understanding how to build that adaptability into your Mm -hmm. culture so that I'm going to tell you a great story. I'm going to make it real short, but this says it all. So I I hate to talk about the pandemic because it's over talked about, but this story is just too good not to share. So one of one of the clients that I deal with is in the automotive industry. And I talk about this example in the book. He's got 90 some odd dealerships out there, um, uh, car dealerships across the country. Uh, he also has a very successful race team. So those that follow NASCAR might know who I'm talking about. He's actually the winningest NASCAR team on NASCAR. So he's, he's really, I think I used to be a fan. If it's Joe Gibbs, I used to be a fan. It's not Joe Gibbs. Okay. Okay. I couldn't remember if he owned car dealerships or not. (laughs) No, no. Okay. Um, it's Hendrick automotive. I don't mind sharing it. They're a fantastic. Oh yeah. 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 
with a fantastic culture and the Hendrick race team. But I think just one again uh, this past weekend. Yeah. But here, here's the story that I love to tell. So uh, the, the CEO and owner of that company still privately held um, is Rick Hendrick. And in January of 2020, he stood up at their annual kickoff and he tells all of his general managers, his market area vice presidents and all of his leaders. He said, listen, we're going into 2020 with a great strategic plan. He said, I'm, I really want you guys focus. I want to execute with with as much accuracy as possible. And I want us to have the best year ever. And then he said something. Everybody kind of looked around and then he said, however, be ready to call an audible. He said, we don't know what's, we never know what's going to happen. He said, so we want to be the kind of organization that has the adaptability built in to call an audible. Well, we know what happened in March of 2020. So a few months later, this thing comes along, pandemic, businesses are being shut down. The government's trying to determine who's going to open, who's essential, who's not. Now, here's where the story gets really good. Rick Hendrick has a choice. He's got 98 dealerships out there and he could go one way. And one way he might go is, okay, sit down with his financial team and say, you know, how can we reel this thing in? Where can we cut costs? You know, who do we need to lay off? What redundancy do we need to look at and really button down the hatches? And that's what a lot of leaders did, by the way. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of leaders do in the face of uncertainty. But let me tell you, Rick knew something that the average leader doesn't know. He knew that he had a culture that he knew if he could tap into their creativity and their innovation, he was going to be just fine. So guess what he did? He goes to his financial team and he says, I want you to run the numbers on this thing. He said, if we can't even open, I want to know what it's going to cost me to pay every employee their paycheck, regardless whether we open the doors or not. Wow. Now, I, I happened to work very closely with the CFO of that company, and he told me, he said, man, we were sweating bullets. He said, we spent all kinds of time on this thing, and we're putting it all together. And he said, we finally go to him, and it was a huge number. I'm not going to share what it was, sure. but it was a ton of money every month, okay? A ton of money every month. What did he do? He called a town hall meeting with every general manager of every one of his dealership operations across the country. Here's what he said. He said, I can't get us, I can't get us through this but you can. And he said, I know that we have the intellectual knowledge, the creativity and innovative minds necessary to navigate this, but you're not going to be able to do it if you're worried about paying your bills. Now, remember car dealerships, a lot of their people are on commission. Oh who, yeah. Who's buying a car when they think they're going to be dead from, you know, COVID. Yeah. So when he makes this call, he doesn't know what's going to happen. He says, go back and tell every employee two things. I'm going to guarantee 80% of everyone's salary until this forever, how long it takes, and no one will be laid off. So they're all looking going, whoa, what, what? And then he says the key thing. He says, now that's out of the way. They don't have to worry about their money. They don't have to worry about paying their bills. They don't have to worry about putting groceries on the table. Tell them I need them. Go wow. figure this out. Now, here's the best part of the story. I don't know how many years this organization has been around. It's been a, a long time. In 2020, they had the absolute biggest year they'd ever had in company history, which would make a great story, except for the fact that when they came into 2021, by June of 2021, they had already beat the previous year's record for the whole year. Back-to-back -back corporate records. If you were to walk into a Hendrick dealership right now, I'd, I'd love for you to try this. Go, go up to the, and say, I want to speak to the general manager and just ask and say, hey, 
when Rick Hendrick promised you to make sure your people were paid, what did that do? They will tell you. I had one guy tell me, I said, I said How, what did that do to you? And he literally broke out in tears. And he said, all I could think about was I wanted to make sure that I proved him right, that we were, we were the team, that he had made an investment in the right people. That's culture, my friend. And, 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 and adapt, they did. Wow. It was amazing. Wow. That is one of the best stories yeah, I've ever. Story. That is amazing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so, and you know, the, and the thing is, both those leaders and those employees are, are coming harder, are harder and harder to come by, right? Because everything, especially with them being a private company, a publicly traded company, man, everything is just on such a short time frame. And so to be able and this, and like you said, to remove that worry, to give them nothing to focus on, but charging the hill, that is what a gift, not just the money. I'm just talking about the mental state. What a gift for a leader to give his or her organization. Wow. And, and, the key, and the key here is that he was comfortable doing that because he was confident of the culture that this organization had. He knew that these guys were frontline warriors and they would find a way to make it work. They would find a way to make it happen if they weren't burdened by the responsibility of having to feed their family and not yep. knowing if they were going to get paid or not. Yep. Yep. Man. That's really, that's really a, 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 one of my favorite stories. Brother, that's a fantastic story. And here's the thing, too. Okay, so now I want to take a little bit of a turn and, and bring this down to the micro level. Because your story, Greg, deals a lot with you having to call an audible. We talked about this. Both of us were in real estate during the, the 08, the 07, 08 you know, financial crisis. And you're blowing and going. I got to believe a story like yours that you had to make a shift has so much credibility. When you're talking about being able to turn on the dime, call an audible and completely make changes, you made some dramatic changes to get to where you are today. Tell this audience about that time in your life. Well, you know, it's interesting because the changes, the changes basically that I had to make were a result of the financial collapse back in, you know, 07, 08, whichever one you want to talk about. And you're right. I was in the real estate business and we were, we were in it in a very, very, very large way. So um, we, I had all kinds of properties out there at various stages of development. Uh, we had construction going on in certain some of those developments. Uh, I had a real estate firm, so I had, you know, 72 real estate brokers that worked uh, on selling inventory and stuff. So it was, it was pretty big. And we had uh, close to a $400 million portfolio of, of real estate at various stages. I, I had six banks that I primarily worked with. And um, I had, um, uh, if I remember correctly, about $138 million in real estate development, uh, con- you know, acquisition and development. Mm-hmm. And as, as you know, and probably most of your listeners know, the real, real estate was at the tip of the spear on this whole financial thing. Absolutely. Um, and we, we look back and we know that now. And here's what's interesting, though. I thought, and you want to talk about plan versus prepare, right? So I thought I had planned for, for the worst. I had over $22 million worth of liquidity. And so when the, when the market collapsed, my interest carry on all of my acquisition development loans, about 118,000 a month. Well, I had plenty, 
uh, money to, 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 to cover that for quite some time. And I'm thinking, okay, we'll get on the other side of this. But, but the banks threw me a, a curveball and they um, exercised what is called an acceleration clause. Yep. And it basically gives the banks the right to accelerate a loan for any reason or really for no reason at all. They were hunting cash because their balance sheets were crap. And the FDIC, so the bottom line is they said, uh, we're coming, we're, we're calling the loans due. Wow. And man, let me tell you, that was the hardest two years of my lifetime uh, dealing and working through that. You know, you, you get up every day and you kind of say, nothing good's going to happen today. And it's, it's interesting. Uh, it all boiled down to a, a, a conversation I had with my wife in the kitchen uh, one, one evening. You know, everything's crumbled. Everything I've ever worked for is practically gone. And about the only thing we have left is the house we're in. And, and, and we're probably 90 days from losing that. So I'm standing in the kitchen of my house thinking, gosh, I'm going to be living under a bridge. Maybe I ought to have a conversation with my wife. And I began to kind of start to unpack this for her. And because she, she's like, hey, you know, I'm, I know things are bad and this and that, but we have our health and we have each other, you know, the standard pick, pick me up conversation. And, and that's when I just started crying. I just lost it. You know, I'm, I'm a year into this fight and I, you know, basically get up, throw up and go to work and that kind of stress and stuff. And so it just all came out. And I said, look, you don't understand. It's, it, it's, we're done. It's over. And um, I, I said, we're, we're probably going to you know, lose this house. And then I, all I could think to do was just look at her and say, I'm sorry. Hmm. And I said, I'm sorry, but I don't know what to do. And her response was something I would have never expected. She looked across without hesitation. And she said, well, I don't know what we're going to do either. But I know the guy I'm married to. I know him. I know him well. And I'm not worried. I'm going to bed. you have anything else? She literally went to bed. I, I'm, I'm staying there in the kitchen trying to figure out what just happened. Because, I, you know, I made sure I was on the other side of the island from her. I think it's going to take a broom and beat me. <laughs> I, 10 minutes later, I go into the bedroom. She's, she's fast asleep. I wanted to shake her and say, woman, get up and worry with me. What's your <laughs> but the bottom line out of this is we got through that. We didn't live under a bridge. And, you know, some of those failures and some of those crises and some of that adversity is the very thing that can kind of take you to the next stage of your life. And when I work with a customer or a client you, you think those, those, those memories don't continue with me. I mean, I look oh. when I, when I'm working, when I'm working with a leader, Oh, I look them in the eye and, and I say, listen, I know where you are. I know what you do. I've laid awake on a Tuesday night trying to figure out how I was going to make payroll on Friday. I know everything that's at stake here. Let's take this journey together. Let's figure this thing out. Let's build a culture that will survive anything that comes at you. And allow the people that you've entrusted to run this company play a part in that. And 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 you you probably have similar stories in your life. We all have these defining moments, I think, that really determine um, why we do what we do. Oh man! I, so you remind me, and this audience has heard this story before, but I haven't told it in a while, and I won't go into the whole all the details. But one of my mentors and one of the dearest friends that I have is a guy named Phil Burks. And Phil 
is the founder of the Genesis Corporation. And one time, whenever he was starting out, similar story, he had a decision to make. Do I make payroll or do I pay the IRS? And he chose to take care of his people before the, the government. And his wife calls him one day and says, why has my entire paycheck just been garnished? Oh, no. And he was overseas in the Middle East on a business trip trying to close a deal to get them from one month to the next. And essentially, same thing, broke down in tears and told her what it was going on. And um, I think those are the stories, just talking about entrepreneurship in general, mm-hmm. being a sm- that, that, that small business owner. A lot of people, they, they see the success, but they don't hear the stories like that where grown men are brought to tears. And, and then also, kudos to your wife. I mean, what, it just, what a phenomenal business partner you have, my friend. And, and I, I'm the same way with uh, Jimlin, my wife, how fortunate we are. And these women that are like this, that are just these, you know, excuse me, audience, but they're just badasses. They're so much more level-headed, and they see us better than we see ourselves, the good and the bad. But in these moments of real struggle, they're like, whoa, wait a minute. I know who you are, and I bet on you every day of the week and twice on Sunday. And what an, what an incredible story. And then do you agree that those moments of adversity, suffering, and I know it's almost cliche at this point, but we, we, we're not just talking about because we read it in a book. We didn't just read Shackleton's endurance and go, yeah, well, see, that's what made Shackleton so great is all the endurance, all the adversity that he faced trying to get to Antarctica. No, we've lived through some stuff. Don't you think those are the stories that we'll be telling for the rest of our lives and probably the best learning experiences we'll ever have? Boy, Jason, it is. And this is this is what I try to get leaders to understand so many times we run our business where a big part of our focus is to insulate ourselves from a bad mistake or a failure. What, what I try to help leaders understand is don't do that. Build an organization that understands the, the, the true path to something extraordinary, the true path to being an industry leader, the true path to beating the pants off of the competition is paved with both good and bad ideas. Mm-hmm. If you are constantly trying to f- uh, uh, filter out the bad ideas, right? You're going to be like Netflix. Are you going to be like uh, Blockbuster when Netflix says, "Here, buy us"? Yep. Oh no, I don't think so. Are you going to be like Western Union when when Alexander Graham Bell said, "Here's the patents to to the telephone," and you look at it as an electronic toy? And 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 I love that story because it, at that time, Western Union was a behemoth. Yeah. They could have very easily absorbed any failure associated with telephone, yep. but 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 because they wanted to stick to their tra- traditional thought process. So my point is, yes, I, the the great thing about failure, particularly if it's a big one like the, the story I just told you, n- nothing scares you after that. Uh, and that's the truth. Are you kidding me? Uh, I, I mean, I, I um, nothing scares me. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing too, you know, and also they make for the best, the best stories to teach others. You know, Phil that I was mentioning earlier, he wrote the book, um, How to Eat a Failure Sandwich. And a lot of people get caught up in this, well, I've had success. I mean, Phil's had just astronomical success, but when he finally decides to write a book about his 
experiences as an entrepreneur, it's like, well, I want to tell you how I failed. And, you know, I, and, and, and a great contrast to that was Jason Wright at 35, writing his first book, Push Play, Taking Your Life Off Pause, which was me documenting my escape with Colin, our mutual friend from the corporate world into entrepreneurship, you know, and, and it's a good book and I like it. I hope that people read it and they go, wow, I want to design my life too. But the older I get, the more I realized that that entire book should have been maybe a chapter. The rest of it should have been all the ways I screwed up, all the conversations I had when I didn't have any clue where I could barely make my own house payment and I'm making my realtor's house payments because I'm going, I've got to have you succeed. If you can't make your house payment, then I will never be able to make mine. And those are the moments that shape us and teach us. And, and it's one of the things I think we're losing sight of, which is a great, we could go all day on a philosophical rant about what we're talking right now is that this whole idea of, Jim and I were having this conversation uh, last night about why so many young people are taking fentanyl, vaping, smoking pot, all these other things. They're just wanting to check out mentally. And what do you think it is? What, what, okay, here is my, my armchair analysis. I think we are living in a time right now where two points. One, you are not supposed to feel any pain, any discomfort whatsoever, mentally, physically, emotionally. And if you do, there is an outside evil force that must be stopped because you are simply not supposed to be uncomfortable. You're not supposed to be too hot. You're not supposed to be too cold. You're not supposed to feel stressed. You're not, your muscles aren't supposed to ache. You're not supposed to have to work too hard. You're not supposed to be bored. We can't even be bored anymore. We've got these PDAs. You are not supposed to be bored. You're supposed to be entertained 24 seven. So I think what's happening is there, there's, there's a lie being told that you're never supposed to be uncomfortable in any form of fashion. Now, here's point number two. And again, this is just Jason Wright's armchair psychologist or an armchair, you know, armchair analysis. Because we are living in the single greatest point in the entire human experience. Now, now, mind you, at this same time, there are there's more suicides and more miserable people and more more antidepressants being prescribed than any other time. But as it relates to the human experience, it's the greatest time to be alive ever. And I think that's coming in contrast. Those things that I said, we're not supposed to feel any pain or discomfort. You can darn near eliminate nearly every single bit of it, either with a pill if I'm bored and I don't want to think about why I'm not working, why I'm not succeeding, I can get on my iPhone and I can escape all day long. I can be, and, and, and Andrew Huberman, the, the neuroscientist out at Stanford who has some great, does some great work, he said that one of the biggest problems we have right now is these little bitty drips of dopamine that we can find everywhere. We are becoming dopamine addicts, these little drips that come from like a TikTok feed where our brain was not it, uh, used to, we had to at least get up and walk through a door to experience a different environment. Now you can go to 35 countries, watch what's going on live right now on TikTok within five minutes. And the brain doesn't know how to handle that. So I think that we're just being lulled into this state of just constant dopamine drips, checks, checks out of reality, and all based on this lie that you and I are never supposed to feel any discomfort, even though we know, even though every all the research is there, 
You must have suffering, struggle, and pain and resistance if you are to ever, ever develop and grow. And, you know, Michelangelo, if he had used a rubber hammer, would never have chiseled the David. Now, the rock never would have felt anything, but he never would have chiseled it. It's going to take some striking and taking away that stone and shaping it. And that's hard. And that's what we are figuratively. Life shapes us. So I can get on a big rant about that, Greg. So, can, can, I, can I just draft off of that for a second? Go for it. I, I think this is important, and I think we can tie this back to business. I really do, because one of the biggest challenges that leaders present to me all the time is, is they'll come to me and they'll say, Greg, I, you know, I, I don't know how to motivate this new workforce, yep. right? Yep. And, and they'll, you know, they'll label them, it's millennial, it's Z, it's X, it's Y. I mean, I, I can't even keep up with all of them. But what they don't, here's what they don't understand, and it has a lot to do with what you just said. You could have seen this coming a long time ago, right? We, we, we saw this coming when my, my youngest son, who's now 21, uh, when he was young, uh, I, I saw this coming. He's an athlete, he, he, um, and he plays a lot of sports, has all his life. I, I never forget one time, um, you know, we, we, we got him in a, I can't remember if it was a soccer league or a baseball league. It doesn't really matter, but it was one of those leagues that they said, you know, this is all about the self-esteem of the kids, all right. So everything we do is going to build up their self-esteem. So um, we're not going to keep score. <laughs> um, and, and I remember I was I was doing a lot of traveling back then. And um, I, I remember one time I got finished early and I was going to get back to watch Gavin play. And it was a big deal because I, I, I missed a lot. And I, I one of the regrets that I have. But um, and I pull up to the parking lot and I'm going up to the ball field and I see my wife in the bleachers. And so I just kind of holler out at her. I say, Hey, how's it going? You know, what's the score <laughs> now before she can answer this woman turns around and says, the score here in this league is having fun to having fun. We don't keep score <laughs> to which my wife quickly responds and says, we're having fun 10 times. They're having fun three times. That's awesome. Now, that's the culture we, we had at our house, right? Yeah. Now, fast forward the game film, and I don't want to brag on my son too much, but he's now competing in a sport that's arguably one of the, the, the most demanding sports out there, wrestling. He's at a D1 oh, University of Virginia. Oh, and, yes. And, and so he's wrestling at that level with that kind of demands on his on his physical and mental, you know, cutting weight and all that stuff. And he made the dean's list. Wow. Well, and, and I don't, the point that I'm making here is this. You nailed it, Jason. You nailed it. What I tell leaders is, look, there is an inborn desire in all of us to contribute and to be part of something bigger than ourselves that does something extraordinary. Yep. And the generation of workers that are coming in, what leaders don't understand is they've never had the adrenaline rush of self-esteem of saying, I'm going to try out for that team. You know, when, when I played sports, I remember trying out for, for the, 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 the basketball team when I was a freshman in high school and I didn't make the team. I mean, they didn't even give me a spot. And I didn't go home and whine about it. I went home and said, okay, well, how am I going to make the team next year? Well, guess what? I made the team next year and never played. 
sat on the bench the whole time. Well, look, what we've come to now is we've said, well, we can't let little Johnny's feelings be hurt. He can't feel that kind of pain. He can't go through that kind of adversity. That will damage his self-esteem. What we've actually done is the opposite. We've damaged their self-esteem. They don't have any. That's right. Because self-esteem comes from setting your sights on something, going through the adversity and the pain and the discipline and the work to get there. And and you may fail when you get there. Yep. Well, and you know who else didn't make the team whenever they didn't make varsity their first shot at was Michael Jordan. And Michael, the University of uh, North Carolina, their blessing was the fact that North Carolina State, the Wolfpack did not want Michael Jordan. And Tom Brady, but for Drew Bledsoe getting hurt, might not have seen the field. You know, and it was certainly at the combine. The dude ran a five-two, I think forty at the combine was. I mean, the scouting report on Tom Brady is abysmal. And yet, these individuals. And if you, you know, I tell you what, if you have not read, and you probably have, but if you have not read uh, Mindsets by Carol Dweck or read any of okay Carol Dweck's research, it talks all. Yeah, I mean, it's. It's there. There you go. There you go. You, it is one of the. It is one of the greatest because you're looking at a guy that. Thank God, my dad raised me the way he did because I had a fixed mindset. I believed you were either born with athletic ability or not. You were either good at math or you were not. You either had these talents or you didn't, and that they couldn't. That it wasn't something that you. I mean, I will never be a Tom Brady and Michael Jordan or an Albert Einstein mathematician, but I can always grow to get better. And the only way that I can ever get better is to face those challenges, to get knocked down and to do as Winston Churchill said, go from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. And yet we're told it's, it's a, it's a shame what's happening with the young people today. And the thing is too, a lot of people make fun of the the likes of Jordan Peterson and others that say, first of all, clean your own room or make your own bed. And I think a lot of this too is what we're doing is we're taking a lot of these individuals that they have not seen success in their own personal life. And instead of fixing a very small problem that no one else but them sees, that no one else will ever know that they fixed, no one will ever know that their bathroom is clean, no one will know that their toilet is clean and their bed is made. That's not big enough. So instead, they go out like Don Quixote and slay slay windmills because at least everybody sees me slaying and everybody celebrates me. Now, I'm not making a damn bit of difference, but at least everybody sees me doing it and I get praised for doing it. And I really don't have to do anything. That's the good news. I never have to eat. No one will ever say whether I have failed or succeeded because I'm out here in a a bunch of other people doing the same thing instead of just finding value in doing the dishes, the small things that compound 1% per day that end up 37% better at the end of the year going, wow, I took from cleaning my bathroom to cleaning my house to now I can really make an impact. I know what it means. And I... I, I, it worries me. I've tried to tell my daughters who are of that generation, I, and I did, by God's grace. I saw it coming. You know, we used to call the, the, the participation trophies. Those were the thanks for coming out awards. Those are those. And they, I didn't force them, you know, people, I'm not that bad of a dad, but we, they threw them away. They didn't want them. They didn't want a thanks for coming out award. They wanted. Here, here's the interesting thing about this. Everything you're pointing to, you're talking about, I mean, we started this conversation trying to figure out, you know, why drugs and fentanyl and mm-hmm. all this other stuff is so prevalent. And it's, it's worse than it's ever potentially been. It's, it's of, of epidemic proportion because any kind of success, any kind of kudos, any kind of awards 
that didn't require you to earn them is empty. And when it, look, if, if, if I get to the top of the success mountain and I look around and I say, oh my gosh, th- this is it. This is all it is. This is what it's about. That's a pretty doggone empty feeling. Absolutely. The significance of one's life comes when we, A, discipline it and work for things that we want to go out and achieve, and B, be part of a tribe where my contribution matters and adds a significance and positive impact to other people. And that's, that's the whole essence of culture. Yeah. It's tribal belonging. Mm-hmm. It's a set of standards that says, if you're going to be in this tribe, here, here's how we think. Here's the things we do, and here's how we interact with each other. Come be a part of this and understand, man, you are part of a tribe, and we will go together and do great things. And so what a lot of leaders do with these new employees coming in, they try to, they try to make so much process and procedures and rules, and they try to narrow the guardrail so, so tight that a monkey could do the job, yep. and they're missing the boat. Yep. It's, it's not about doing the job. It's a matter of providing an environment where someone maybe for the first time gets a trophy, but it's not for participation. It's for something they actually accomplished. And you show them that one time, that one adrenaline rush, that one time, and you've got them hooked for life. I, I agree. And like, I guess it was, uh, I think it was Stephen Kotler that made the argument in uh, The Art of Impossible Three things that if you can if you can give this in the workplace or, or, or facilitate the ability for this mastery what is it uh, mastery autonomy and I, I just had the third one mastery autonomy and purpose if you can give an employee those and here's the thing too that like uh, what Daniel Pink has found out is and all the research has always shown what you to speak to what you're saying is that. A lot of bosses that are lazy, they're like politicians. They think if you just throw money at it, dump a bag of cash on it, that'll work. That'll make them work hard. It never make, make a rule to keep them straight. Exactly. It, it has never worked. Micromanagement and just making the the carrot money. It might work in the short term if you want to get a like if you want to get your project finished quicker. And you say there's a bonus at the end. It will sure. last for that project. But what you're talking about, if you're wanting to build a culture, then you have to make people buy into the fact that not only does this company need me, but I'm I'm in. I'm 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 here for it. And watch me succeed. And then the satisfaction of that. And I think that's what a lot of a lot of very uncreative business owners don't get. And I can't tell you how like one of my favorite questions, Greg. And I bet you've dealt with this. If you deal with any type of bonus incentive compensation plans, if I'll, I'll start out and I'll ask them, do you give a, a bonus? Yeah, we give a bonus every year around Christmas. I'm like, oh, wow, how, how original. And then um, I'll go, how much did X employee get last year? Let's just say $10,000. And I'll go, why? And they go, well, that's just, they were good. And I said, well, how did you measure that? And they're shocked whenever I tell them for some employees, this isn't, you know, but some employees they'll get the 10,000 and they could care less why they got 10,000 or if they had gotten 5,000, they don't care. But if you have a high performer, if you've got the right guy on the bus, if you've got the, if you've got the guy on the bus that would play for the university of Alabama, he doesn't care if it's $500 or 
$10,000, he wants to know that he received or she received 100% of the bonus available. And if not, you better have a damn good understanding of why not. Why didn't I get the full bonus? Because that's what I'm more interested in is I want to work towards, it's not about just the 10,000 and so many business leaders don't get this. And when I tell them, you could really lower your incentive compensation. You could save that money by just well, getting a metrics together and explaining why they're getting the amount they're getting. Right. Yeah, Jason, this is so good, man. Listen, you, you, um, you ought to do this podcast thing more often. You're pretty good at it. <laughs> uh, but I, I, there's look, high performance. I, I, um, I did a, a keynote speech one time on, um, building a high performance organization and what, what all is involved in it. And I kind of stumbled across this, this concept by accident and I had tested it in the workplace for quite some time. And here's, here's the thing that a lot of leaders miss about having a high performance organization, which is nothing more than building a workforce of high performance individuals. Right. And they, here's where they always like go that. to. Right. So the compensation thing, which you just pointed out, right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've got the best compensation package in the market. Therefore, I'm going to have the highest performance. Well, that that just doesn't work. And you and I know it. Uh, so they're so they go there. Uh, the second thing is they want to have these rah rah things about setting these, you know, big, hairy, audacious goals like we talked <laughs> about in good to great. Yeah. So here's my BHAG and I'm going to put pom poms on and go, let's go get them and let's take the hill. And so they, they think goals are the way to inspire people. So you set these high goals, give them something to achieve. And you pay them really, really well, and you're going to have a high-performance organization. The reality is this. Goals are, are, are achievement-driven, okay? And but, but what's key in business is the sustainability of high performance. If you want a sustained high-performance effort from your workforce, there's only one way you're going to get it. And that is there's got to be an emotional attachment. Amen. Period. Amen. Period. I do a lot of work with the Army Special Operations guys. What makes a guy go out with four or five other guys on a team, risk his whole life, and get in some of the most dangerous, craziest situations ever? He has an emotional attachment to the purpose that he's serving or the team that he's working with. They talk about it all the time, a, 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 an unpaid debt, because if I go out there with you, Jason, and I know you're my brother in arms and you're, you are my keeper and I am your keeper, we're brothers keepers, and, and I know that I have an obligation to you, that emotional attachment to that five or six man team is what drives the highest performance that I have to give. It makes me walk in the door every day and give my A game. And what, I, what I'm telling leaders about culture is you've got to create this environment where I belong to the tribe and there are behavioral standards, there's ways of thinking, and there's interaction guidelines that I'm supposed to live up to. And when I do, I have the support of the whole tribe. And then we collectively and collaboratively go out and do something extraordinary. I love we it. We do something that we could have never done individually. We do it collectively. And that, my friend, is what drives people. Is that I, someone asked me one time, they said, Greg, with all your experience and everything you've ever done, what's the toughest job you ever had? What's the toughest thing you ever did? And I never had to say, I said, the toughest job I ever had was dad. Mm hmm. And, Amen. And, and if you think about it as a parent, 
Heck, all that goes into parenting, the, the, the arguments you have with your teenagers, the rules you have to lay down, the, you know, the things you have to deal with and so on and so forth. And you have to do it for what? A long extended period of time. What keeps a parent from just throwing in the towel and quitting and going, you know what? Go, don't do your homework. You know, go, you know, go do whatever you, you know, I'm done. What, what, what keeps that from happening? It's an emotional attachment. Yep. I mean, my, my oldest son's 38 and, and I'm still pushing. <laughs> I'm still in there in the game with him. Now it's, it's a whole different role, of course. Sure. But there's an emotional attachment and that emotional attachment is what allows people to have a high performance com- or a commitment to high performance for long, sustainable periods of time. Yep. Yep. I love it. Greg, we could go all day, brother. I want to show your book. For, for those of you listening, here is, or you watch on the YouTube channel, here is the, the book, The Four Dimensions of Culture. And I'm actually going to, uh, I'll have all this in the show notes where you can pick up the book and where you can contact Greg. All right. You, you've got, okay, here is the penance for you changing the name of my show to the Jace, the James Wright show. Here's your penance. You got to promise Greg Cagle that you will come back on the show. Cause dude, we could do this all day. This was, this is a blast. I'm going to put you on the spot dead serious. And, and I'm glad this is video so people can see the sincerity I, I've, I've done. I don't even know how many of these I've done in the last two or three months. Jason, I'm not kidding. I, I would love to come back because I just feel like we got so much more to talk about. And you're my kind of guy. I appreciate um, that. I, so, so my answer is yes. So now if your listeners never see me again, they'll know that you didn't invite me back. <laughs> well, it's a done deal. And it's, it's a mutual, it's mutual brother. There was some great iron sharpening iron, as we say, uh, and, uh, happening here today and you are welcome anytime. And so with that, Greg Cagle, Thank you so much. His book again, folks, is the four dimensions of culture. And you can, you can see why you should, if you're a business leader of any sort of any stripe, you should get this book. And, uh, and yeah, you're going to get back on here, Greg. And I thank you, brother. I appreciate you coming on, man. It's been a pleasure. Well, that does it for this episode of the Jason Wright show. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a Texas Titan media production. Fourth wall did the music. And as always, Thank you so much for listening. Please consider going out to jasonrightnow.com and signing up for the Vitruvian Letter. Also, please go out to iTunes. It takes like 30 seconds to just leave us a five-star rating. It does wonders for the podcast. I would be so grateful. And with that, until we meet again, go crush it and endeavor to improve always in all ways. I'm out.